Well, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited about this morning. Anybody excited this week? Come on. Um, and I'm excited not just because it didn't snow this week. Come on. If you're watching online and you're not from Edmonton, you might not understand what I'm talking about, but we've been on this roller coaster of 20 degrees minus 15. 20 degrees minus 15. And for once, for once it was warm all week. Come on. Uh, but I'm not just excited because of the weather. Weather is pretty great, but, but I've been excited all week just to have this opportunity to, to gather and to speak and to worship together as a community. And, and I'm really excited to share God's word this morning because, you know, the scripture tells us that, that God's word is alive and it is active. Hebrews 4.12, it says, it says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joint from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God's word is alive. God's word is active. And God's word is here. And I believe this morning that God wants to speak to you if you're willing to listen. So, so I'm, I'm really excited, though, because I have the great opportunity to share perhaps perhaps one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. And I don't say that, like, just lightly, because there's a lot of great stories in the Bible. You want to read some crazy stories? Just, just go from, like, 1 Samuel until 2 Chronicles. There's some great stuff in there. But, but, but I want to share from, from one of my favorite stories in the Bible, one of my favorite stories, actually, about Jesus from perhaps my favorite gospel, the book of John. And, and it's a story known as... The woman caught in adultery. It's out of John 8, and it says this. It says, at dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts again, and soon all the people gathered around to listen to his words. So he sat down, and he taught them. In the middle of his teaching, the religious scholars and the Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a woman who had been caught in the act of committing adultery and made her stand in the middle of everyone. Let's just pause there for a second, because I want to paint a scene here. You have Jesus. He's standing in the temple court. He's standing in the height of religious practice. He's standing in the place that the Jews said, if you want to worship God, you have to come here. You have to come to the temple. He's standing in this great, beautiful location. And he's preaching the sermon. And in the middle of his sermon, while well, all the religious leaders of the time, they bust into the room, they break his flow, they interrupt his sermon, and... They're like, hey, Jesus, this woman has been caught in adultery. And then it says, then they said to Jesus, teacher, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. I don't know about you, but whenever I read the Gospels and I read about the Pharisees, I picture them as angry old white men. Um, and it's partly because the Bible doesn't paint them in a very good light ever. Um, but, but I always, and, and I know contextually they probably weren't, but, but I always picture them with like this gravelly angry voice. Like, Teacher, we caught this woman in the very act of committing adultery. Doesn't Moses' law command us to stone to death a woman like this? Tell us, what do you say we should do with her? And they were only testing Jesus because they hoped to trap him with his own words and accuse him of breaking the law of Moses. But Jesus didn't answer them. Instead, he simply bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. You know, I love this story. But when I was studying this passage this week and, and working through this message, one thing really stood out to me. It's, 
how we're given in the story no information about this woman. They bring this woman and they're like, she was caught in the act of committing adultery. We don't know what she looks like. We don't know her name. We don't even know how old she was. We just know what she's done. She's referred to as the woman who's committed adultery. The woman who broke the law. The woman who, according to law, deserved to die. So I want to talk to you guys this morning about this idea of that's not who I am. That's not who I am. Father God, I just pray over your congregation, Lord, that we will all be receptive to the words you have to say to us this morning, God. Let your word speak to our hearts, God. Let us receive what you have for us this morning. God, let me be your mouthpiece, Lord, that I will say what you have for these people to hear, God. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. That's not who I am. That's not who I am. You know, I think very often in life we can be left saying that very phrase, that's not who I am, both as a defense when we do something wrong, like I do something bad, oh, well, that's not who I am. It's, it's, it's okay. I won't do that again. That's not who I am. And, and also as a defense for things that other people say about us, for, for labels that others have put on us. Because, you know, so often in life, it's easy for people to, to look at us and, and based on what they see in us or hear from us to actually judge us and label us in some way, missing the big picture of who we are, but just based on what they see. Like, come on, how many of you have been alive long enough to have someone say something false about you? Come on. Everyone should just be agreeing with that if you're over the age of like two. Because the reality is, if you've gone through high school, you know what I'm talking about. People like to label one another, and I think it helps us contextualize and understand others, but, but often the problem with labels is we miss who the person is. It's like somebody catches you at work reading about the NHL. Oh, well, you must be a hockey fan. They don't care if you just happen to click on the article by accident. They see it. Oh, you're a hockey fan. And oh, you did it, and you weren't on break. You did it during work hours. Well, now you're the lazy hockey fan. Good for you. Somebody hears that you're doing something great. Maybe you're part of like the YEG cleanup crew that goes to the city's parks and cleans up. And somebody hears about that. Like, oh man, you must be like the most incredible person because I would never do that. And, and suddenly you're like this great person. It goes both ways. Or, or um, somebody takes something that you said as a joke the wrong way and suddenly you're a jerk. Come on, how many of you have ever had that happen to you? Yeah? Come on. That's how I met my wife actually. <laughs> I uh, I was just first week here as a youth leader here at Gateway. Um, she walked into the room as I was having a conversation with a bunch of other youth leaders, one of whom had just made a sarcastic comment to me. So what I did was I was making a sarcastic comment back. She only heard that sarcastic comment. And for a year, I was just the jerk who was rude to her friend. Managed to turn it around, but you know. But the point is, people label you based on what they see in you. People label you based on what they see you do, whether, whether it's for good or for bad. And the reality is, if you want people to truly understand who you are, you can be left kind of picking up the pieces, trying to show them who you actually are. And it cuts both ways, like I mentioned. Um, like, I've heard it, I've had it where people have asked me what I do for a living. I'm like, oh, well, I'm a pastor. Oh, so you're like a stuck-up judgmental person. No, 
But it's just some people jump to that conclusion. And, and then on the flip side, I've also heard it, especially around Christians, um, uh, a lot of my experiences with youth was this, where people are like, oh, you're a pastor. Oh, sorry, I just swore. Oh, uh, you're, you're perfect. You can't, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I can't be like myself around you because I have to hide myself because you're so perfect. I'm like, no, 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 I, I'm a human being like, like you. I make mistakes like you. We all make mistakes. It's funny. It's just funny how the conclusions people can, can jump to. I've had people walk alongside me and, and see what God is doing in my life and give like words of like, God's going to use you in this way. And it's like, yes, this is great. And I've had people um, walk alongside me through a period in my life who then hear what God is doing through me. And they're like, really? Really? I legit heard um, when I got promoted here at Gateway to associate pastor, one of my old college profs was like, really, Darian? Really? Really? Like that, that, that's really great, thanks. <laughs> but it cuts both ways. People can label you for good and miss who you actually are and miss the bad. And people can label you for bad and miss the good. It's to the extent that in, in 2 Corinthians 12, we see Paul, he, he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, like, I will boast about others, but I will never boast about myself except of my weaknesses. Be- not because I don't deserve to boast, not because if I boasted, I'd be lying, but simply because I don't want you to think more of me than what can be seen in me or heard from me. Essentially saying, I, I want you to know the real me. I don't want you to-, to have this inflated idea of who I am. I want you to know the real me. Because the reality is others will label us based on what they see in us, just as we label others based on what we see in them. And just as we label ourselves based on what we see in us. And you know, the struggle with labels is that when they're not true, when they're not based in truth, you can kind of just brush them off. It's no big deal. But if that label is based in truth, when there's evidence to back up the label, when there's evidence to say, like, yeah, I did something wrong, I deserve that label, it, it can be really hard, and, and we can just be left saying, well, well that's, that's not who I am. It's not who I am. I'm not that way anymore. It's not who I am. You know, I have to wonder in this story in John 8, what was going on in that girl's mind as she was being dragged through the streets to Jesus? Like, we obviously don't know what happened before this moment in time where Jesus is teaching and the Pharisees drag her into the temple courts, but you can imagine they they probably just caught her in the act, dragged her through the streets, brought her before Jesus, and suddenly in that moment, her biggest shame has been revealed. The worst thing she's done in her life has been exposed, and, and suddenly, not only does, like, a few people know about it, Everyone knows about it. And she's in this crowd of people, and they all know what she's done. And they're all looking at her. They're all labeling her adulteress. You deserve to die. And they're judging her. Because it's easy, you know, to defend yourself when, when others don't know what you've done, right? It's easy to defend yourself when, when the bad things you do 
are internal or others haven't seen them or nobody knows about it. It's easy to tell yourself, oh, well, that happened in a moment of, of just passion. I'm never going to do that again. Oh, I made that decision. That decision was wrong, but nobody needs to know about it. I'm not, who, I'm not that person. That's not who I am. But when your deeds are exposed, it's so much harder to defend yourself. And this woman, she's been caught in the very act. She's guilty, and under the law, she deserves to die. And in this moment, the Pharisees are using her to try and trap Jesus. And it says, John 8, verse 3, it says, In the middle of his teaching, the religious scholars and the Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a woman who'd been caught in the very act of adultery. They said to Jesus, teacher, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Doesn't Moses' law command us to stone to death a woman like this? Tell us, what do you say we should do with her? And this girl, she's exposed. She's alone. She's guilty. She's condemned. And she deserves to die. But, you know, in studying this passage, I noticed something very, very interesting. Um... You know, the Pharisees, back, back in the Bible days, they were, they were known as the experts of the law. So you had, like, hundreds of laws that, that God had given to Moses that had become, like, the formation of, of Israel's laws. And then on top of that, they had added, like, thousands of extra laws because why not make it more complicated to follow God? Um, but the Pharisees, they, they knew the law. They knew it inside and outside, up, down, every aspect of it they knew. But in this moment, it's interesting because they were overlooking something. Go to t- Deuteronomy 22. It says, Deuteronomy 22 says this, If a man is caught lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman, as well as the woman. Now something interesting. Go back to John 8 for a second. Middle of his teaching, re- religious scholars and the Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a woman who'd been caught in the act of committing adultery. Go back to Deuteronomy 22 again. If a man is caught lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. Man who lay with the woman as well as the woman. It's interesting. They bring the woman to Jesus. But where's the man? Where's the man? Where's the guy? It takes two to tango. You can't commit adultery by yourself. <laughs> like, where's the guy? You see, the thing is, like in, in Jewish law, they had to bring her to Jesus and say she needs to die, there had to be two or three witnesses that proved that she was guilty. Because if they just suspected her of being guilty of committing adultery, the, the law at the time was, we'll take her to the temple, she's suspected of committing adultery, okay, we're going to mix some water with some dust from the floor, and essentially the ink off of your marriage vows, and you're going to drink that, and if you get sick, you're guilty. If you don't, you don't you're not guilty. That was the whole process for, for dealing with people who were suspected of committing adultery, but, but for her to be accused, for her to be standing in front of Jesus, and them to say, she deserves to die, that means that two or three of them had to catch her in the act. So, where's the guy? Where's the guy? And you know, to make matters worse, if you notice in that passage, Deuteronomy 22, it doesn't actually say to stone her. It doesn't actually say that. It just says she should die. They should die. And according to, like, rabbinical sources from that, that time period, the actual proper method 
uh, of killing adulterous people was, was strangulation because it was considered more humane than, you know, throwing stones at somebody until they died. I don't know. I'm not going to judge. Um, but <laughs> but, but for, for stoning to be prescribed and for stoning to be the actual, like, the, the method of death for an adulterous relationship, um, actually, the next passage in Deuteronomy 22 talks about, like, if the girl is a virgin who is betrothed to another man and commits adultery, then both of them shall be stoned. So, essentially, what we're seeing here is very likely this young girl, this teenage girl who's engaged to another man, has an adulterous relationship with somebody who she's not engaged to. She gets caught. The man somehow gets away, and she is brought before Jesus to be stoned. And you know, I'm not like the most suspicious person in the world, but this, this story really makes me suspicious of what's going on here. So it makes me wonder, like, what happened here that the Pharisees, who were upset at Jesus, found out, oh, Jesus is teaching in the temple. Let's take him down. Ooh, convenient. We just, three of us just happened to walk into this room where an adulterous relationship is happening. Wow. And then, oh, we're just going to grab the girl and bring her, bring her to Jesus. Like, it makes me wonder, like, who they were trying to protect what the exact circumstances were. And, and obviously, we, we don't really know what happened, but it almost sounds too convenient. Almost sounds like they set this up to try and trap Jesus. Because regardless of the situation, the reality was that, that in this moment, if Jesus said, stone her, well, suddenly... He was in violation of Roman law because only Rome could um, inflict the death penalty. So I'm fully expect if he had said stone her, they would have gone, hey, Romans, this guy right here. And if he says do not stone her, well, then he's in violation of Jewish law and would immediately be discredited as a, as a teacher in Israel. Nobody would listen to him. But Jesus' response is telling. Verse 6, it says Jesus didn't answer them. Instead, he simply bent down and began to write on the ground with his finger. And you know, I think in that moment, something pr profound was happening. Because everyone had been looking at this girl. Everyone had been judging her. Everyone was staring daggers at her. You can imagine, like, this crowd looking at this person just like, who do you think you are, you horrible, horrible person? And in that moment, Jesus ignores what the Pharisees are saying. He ignores what people are saying. He bends down. He begins to write on the ground. And I can imagine in that moment, every eye turns to Jesus. What is he writing? What is he saying? And in that moment, there's a momentary reprieve for the girl. And then Jesus begins to write on the ground and and it's this really cool scene, which I think we miss the, so often we miss what's actually happening in that moment. Because often, Bible often translates, other translations usually say, like, Jesus began to write in the dust with his finger. And so my, the picture I always paint in my head is, oh, well, Jesus is like on this dirty, dusty road, and he begins to write in the dust with his finger. But, but remember, Jesus, it said at the beginning, verse 3, Jesus was teaching in the temple court. This temple 
built by Herod out of stone. Courtyard paved with stone. So when Jesus bends over and he begins to write, what happens is for the second time in history, the finger of God begins to write on stone. For the first time since God wrote on stone tablets and gave us the Ten Commandments, one of which was do not commit adultery. First time since then, Jesus begins to write on stone. And then it goes on and it says, angry, they kept insisting that he answer them. Instead, he simply, sorry, I'm missing it. Um, in angry, they kept insisting that Jesus, he answer their question. So Jesus stood up and looked at them and said, let's, let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. Then he bent over again and wrote some more in the dust. Upon hearing that, her accusers slowly left the crowd one at a time, beginning with the oldest to the youngest with convicted conscience, until finally Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there in front of him. So he stood back up and said to her, Dear woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one left to condemn you? Looking around, she replied, I see no one, Lord. And it's really cool in that moment, in the Aramaic, she actually, the word Lord is, refer is the word that's also used for God. In that moment, she said, I see no one, God. And Jesus said, then certainly I don't condemn you either. Go, and from now on, be free from the life of sin. And you know, this is just this beautiful moment where this girl who has sinned, she's done something wrong, she deserves to die under the law, but instead of being condemned, she comes into an encounter with the grace of God. Under the law, she deserved to die, but Jesus wasn't interested in condemning her. He wasn't interested in judging her. He was interested in loving her. He was interested in ripping off those labels that others had put on her. You adulterous woman. He's interested in ripping them off and reminding her of who she actually was. And calling her to that next level, to that next standard of living, to that higher standard. To shower her in a grace that she didn't deserve. And you know, this story really, truly is just a beautiful picture of who Jesus was and who he is today. It's a beautiful picture of how Jesus looks at each and every one of us, how God looks at each and every one of us. As the book of John tells us that the son does nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. So if Jesus is forgiving, father is also forgiving. This beautiful moment revealing God's heart for us, how he's not the judge up in heaven waiting for us to screw up so he can throw the book at us. But he's the father who loves us, who cares for us, who wants to protect us and wants to invite us back home. Because the reality is, that while most of us have not done what that woman did exactly, we have all messed up. We've all make, made mistakes. We've all sinned. And we all deserve that same punishment that she deserved. 
We all deserved death. And, and you may not have committed adultery, but I can promise you, every single person in this room, we've all messed up. We've all sinned. We've all done bad things. We all, like that woman, deserve death. And, and you know, those labels that others put on us that, or that we put on ourselves, very often they are accurate. And we deserve those labels because we have done bad things. And sometimes, sometimes it's easy to say, that's not who I am because others mistake who you are. But when you've done something wrong, it's very hard to say that because the punishment of sin is death. See, Romans 3.23 says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We're all like that woman. Convicted, guilty, deserving of death. But fortunately for us, the story doesn't end there. Romans 3.23 and 24, it says, since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, they all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You know, so often I think we get caught up in this wrong perspective of God, that he's the judge up in heaven just, just waiting to punish us. We deserve punishment, so we're just, we expect that he's angry at us. We expect that he hates us. We expect that because we messed up, he must just, we must be disqualified from his love. But, but, but no. Reality, what you see painted throughout Scripture, is that God is not a judge waiting to punish us, but that God is a father trying to bring us back home. He's a father that wants to love us, that wants to protect us, that wants to be there for us, that wants to, to help us and to, and to love us no matter what. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. 3.17, indeed God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. God's not up in heaven looking down at you. Oh, you messed up. Oh, I wanted to love you, but you're disqualified now. No, 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 no. He's the Father up in heaven. Saying, I know you messed up. Come home. Come home. See, this is the good news of Jesus. This is the good news of being a follower of Jesus, that no matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter who you've hurt, no matter who's hurt you, no matter what, no matter how others see you or how you see yourself, God still loves you the way you are. He wants to call you to that higher standard. He wants you to, to call you to that next level of living, but he loves you the way you are. And the beautiful picture that we see in Scripture is that when you come to Christ, all those things, all those labels, those labels that you put on yourself or that others have put on you, well, they don't matter anymore because that's not who you are anymore. Because when you come to Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Who you were before, well, that's not who you are now. 
because you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been you've justified through our Lord Jesus Christ. All those old labels, all those punishments you deserve, they've been wiped clean. And God is welcoming you home with open arms, saying, no matter what, I love you. So if you're here this morning and you're like that woman, and that you've done bad things in your life, you've sinned, you've made mistakes, you've done bad things, you, you've made wrong choices, and, and you know that you're guilty, you know that you deserve those labels that others have for you, and you've never decided to follow Jesus before. If that's you, and you've never decided to follow Jesus, in a moment, I want to give you that opportunity. And I'm not going to ask you to do anything crazy, profound. I'm not going to get you to jump up and wave your arms and, and make a show of it. All I want you to do is this. If I can get everyone to just close their eyes and bow their heads for a moment. If that's you and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, but you want to, in a moment I'm going to count to three. And when I, once I get to three, all I want you to do is just slip up your hand, nobody looking around, and just put it right back down. One, God loves you. Two, your life will never be the same. Three, if you want to follow Jesus, just slip up your hand and put it right back down. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on, let's give God a shout for all the people who just decided to follow Jesus this morning. Come on, come on. Come on. Now, if that's you and you just made that decision to follow Jesus, one last thing I want you to encourage you to do is I want to encourage you to grab your phone, whether it's now or later, and text the word BELIEVE to 587-855-5569. The purpose of this is we don't believe that following Jesus is supposed to happen on your own. We want to be there to support you. We want to be there to celebrate you. We want to be there to encourage you as you grow in your faith and as you move forward in your journey. We want to be able to pray for you. So I just want to encourage you, if you made that decision, text the word BELIEVE, 587-855-5569. The second thing I want to do this morning, just as we close, is as Martin mentioned earlier, it is Baptism Sunday. And the beauty of baptism is is that baptism is a declaration of your decision to follow Jesus. It's you essentially saying, taking a stand and saying, hey, I follow Jesus, publicly declaring, I follow Jesus. And the beauty of it as well is Romans 6 actually tells us that when you are baptized, you are baptized into Jesus' death so that just as he was raised from the dead, you may walk in newness of life. So baptism symbolizes my faith in Jesus, but it also symbolizes the new life that God has for you when you believe in him. So as we go into baptisms and, and celebrate these people who made the decision to get baptized already today, I just want to give everyone else an opportunity as well this morning to get baptized today. So if I can get everyone right now to stand and the people who already signed up for baptisms, if you could come forward, come down to the front here. And if you want to get baptized this morning, if you've never been baptized before, but you want to get baptized this morning, I just want to invite you right now to come down to the front as well. We have clothing for you. We have uh, towels for you. We have everything you'll need to 
get baptized. So if you want to get baptized this morning and you haven't made that decision, come down to the front. Come on. Father God, I just thank you for these amazing people who've decided to demonstrate and to say, I believe in Jesus. For these amazing people who, who want to show the world that they believe in you, God. And Lord, I just pray as we go into baptisms this morning, God, that you'll just open all of our eyes to see the beauty of who you are, God. Lord, as these people go in, into the tank and get baptized, God, that your spirit will fall on them with power, Lord. That you will reveal yourself in new ways, God. And God, I pray over each and every person here, whoever decided, everyone who decided to follow Jesus this morning, God, just help them in their journey. Be with them throughout that journey. And God, everyone who, who is here and, and has already decided to follow you, but still feels those labels, still feels that shame, still feels that, that hurt, God, I just pray that you will be with them this morning, Lord. And you will reveal to them your love for them no matter what. Pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you're getting baptized, head out those side doors and let's worship God.